Welcome to the Chief Future Officer podcast. In today's episode, my guest is Mitesh Popat. Mitesh is a CFO at Cities Global Equity Sales Group. Mitesh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Mitesh, you had a wonderful career, spent 17 years with Citi, and before that, you were a civil engineer. I am really curious, how did that transition happen? Now, I'll, I'll tell you about that transition, but I have to tell you a story before that. So, um, since I pursued civil engineering, both for my bachelor's as well as master's, um, once I got married and I wasn't working as a civil engineer professional, my wife always teased me that um, I have wasted a really precious engineering seat in the best engineering college in India, which I could have given to somebody else. And it took me about 10 to 15 years to prove it to her that engineering background could work magically in a CFO field, which is highly, highly analytical, right? So even to this date, um, I hope I don't offend somebody. I always consider engineering to be a, a go-to degree for anybody who wants to who doesn't know where they want to go and they just want to start from. Very interesting. I always thought engineering and a finance degree and those two career lines are very orthogonal because one's, one is analytical. I think both are analytical, but one is very numbers driven. The other is outcome and scientific measurement driven. How did you reconcile? So I, I, think, I think you are right. I just would bring one nuance to it. The way you described the, the experiment and the discovery piece, I, I consider that to be much more of a forte of pure sciences, your physics, chemistry, etc. And I consider engineering to be like people who are impatient about just applying those things, right? So um, I, I, I would be lying to you if I told you that I always wanted to be CFO because I had no idea. But once I graduated from my master's in engineering, um, I seriously did not know what I wanted to do, but I did know that I did not want to build buildings and bridges, even though I loved a lot of those concepts. And I, I, I took my uh, engineering degree and went to a path which leaves me open, which is consulting. Once you do consulting, basically you have no idea what you want to do and therefore you do consult. So that was my way of discovering what I really wanted to do. And I always consider knowing what you don't want to do is much more important than knowing what you want to do. Interesting. And very surprisingly, I'm assuming that you left that path open even after your undergrad because you did, as you said, you did civil engineering postgrad as well. Yeah, I did. So of course, um, I have to be honest here and say that... Um, I did that because I wanted to come to the land of opportunities, which is USA. So um, I had not thought about doing masters in structural engineering to be precise when I started civil engineering bachelors. But in my final year, when all my batchmates at IIT were thinking about going to USA, I said, this seems like the right path. Let me also go to USA and I found six, seven universities and applied. Fortunately, one of them did select me and gave me scholarships and therefore it just, uh, it's a serendipity path, not a well-crafted path. 
And when did that transition happen? Pretty early on? Because you are at City for almost 18 years now. Yes. So basically, when I was at Masters, it started becoming clear to me that I was not going to be a civil engineering professional. And therefore, I chose Masters, which was highly theoretical. So mm. what I did in my Masters was I was simulating micro cracks in metallic and concrete structures, right? Which would find its application in the real world, maybe 15, 20 years from when I did that, right? So I, I was at that point of time just enjoying the analytics and the discovery piece of it because I knew that I'm not going to really become a civil engineer per se in a professional world. And as I said, I then went to consulting to continue my discovery phase. And that consulting company I went to had all the, all the big banks at their clients. So now I found something I could experiment with without going to a bank. And I really enjoyed working with the banks, colleagues, people, their concepts, et cetera. And in a year and a half, I just got a call from one of the clients, joined them in their treasury department within finance. So it was my first foray into the finance function. And I really love what they were doing. It's a lot of numbers. Uh, of course, when I joined, it was the best time in the banking industry ever. And then it went downhill from here, which is 2006 and then crisis hit. But I really, really enjoyed my time there. So from simulating micro cracks in, you know, real world structures to simulating micro cracks in banking? Uh, that's a good that's a, <laughs> analogy, but I would actually make it worse by saying that uh, we, were, we were simulating quite a lot of macro so it's actually a very relevant question for me because in Treasury, I joined a group which, um, which measured how much capital you need to uh, weather the really, really bad terms, like really bad recession. Now, of course, we simulated a lot of scenarios, but as every bank will say, did not simulate the scenario which actually happened in 2008 and 2009. And, uh, of course, very topical today, we are sitting here and we have another scenario playing out on the industry, which it seems like not all the banks, but smaller banks did not envision in their risk management process. I saw a tweet, somebody talking about not just SVB that happened or First Republic rumors, but a whole slew of 50 other banks are in the pipeline because of the situation everybody else is in. Is that what we're going after or just a rumor mill? I think the, the, the challenge here, in my personal opinion, not my company's opinion, I have to be careful, is that uh, this is a psychological game. This is what I call mob mentality rather than uh, uh, real fundamentals of banking. But of course, don't some smart banker could tell me that bank is all about the trust. It's all about the psychology anyway. So I will, I will try to just separate them. And I have tons of friends, ex-colleagues who work at SVB, really smart people. And I can tell you that if there was a really large, large enough group of people determined to have around on the bank, I don't think any bank in the world is. So I don't think you can simulate a scenario where you can withstand a run by sufficiently large number of withdrawals, if you will. So that's my 
take on it. And that's the distinction I make uh, to what we saw in 2008. Got it. We'll come to Citibank and what's happening in the markets today. But I want to go back in time in your childhood and, and your teenage days. So where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in a small town um, in Gujarat. It's a west state in India. Um, and I moved to another city in the same state for my, we used to call 11th and 12th grade. I should be educated on U.S. education system, but it's the two years before the, before the undergrad. Got it. And what cities were these two? Uh, so I grew up in a city called Rajkot. And then I moved to another city called Vadodara uh, in the same state. Got it. And then from there, you went to IIT Delhi, if I remember correctly. Uh, so I went to IIT Kharagpur, which is Kharagpur, uh, like diametrically opposite to the east side of the of India. Now, of course, India does not follow any time zones, which I really think it should. And there, however, you have like pretty much no daylight on the east side. Um, because they just don't follow time zone and adjust the time. But it was it was four years I spent in IIT Kharagpur away, exactly opposite uh, side of the So IIT Kharagpur is near Kolkata and Gujarat, as you said, is the other side, the Western India. Yes, correct, correct. And and uh, the the interesting tidbit there is I used to take trains from we couldn't afford a flight that time, so I used to take a train which used to take forty hours in the train. Wow. Now, I can't imagine taking that train again today, but that was my normal course of transport twice a year, go back and forth to college at home. And that was a single train ride or multiple changes? No, a single train ride. You get in the middle of the day and you reach the in half after to your college. Interesting. And here... We lament the fact that it takes 20 hours by flight from San Francisco to Bangalore. Yeah, the, the, the times and perspectives are amazing. I think that uh, my, my progression and my experience at City has always been driven by exploration and experimentation. So when, when I started City, I started in New York for, I, I did my three, four years in the treasury that I mentioned earlier. And then um, the catalyst at that point in time was um, I got married. And like um, many of my, my countrymates do in India, it was a kind of hybrid arranged love marriage. And my wife was going to move here uh, from India. And uh, at that point of time, spouses or the dependent visa holders could not work in that country. And she really wanted to work. And in my four years at City, uh, I was told that we are a global bank. We encourage mobility. We are in 100 countries. So I said, let's, let's, let's give this narrative a try. And let's find a country where spouses can work. Okay? So then I explored, talked to a couple of people, and I landed an opportunity in London as well as Hong Kong, which was very fortunate for me. And uh, given my wife had come Recently from India, I decided to go to London because it was much more culturally diverse at that point of time and easy to transition. So that's how I ended up in London. And fortunately, the original objective for which I went to London worked out. And my wife could also start working in the same bank. 
Citibank. So it was quite a successful transition for us. We spent two years in London, really enjoyed professionally, learned a lot professionally about how 54 countries that we operate in EMEA region, which is Europe, Middle East, and Africa, how do we kind of look up those countries, what businesses we have? Because I had, again, a finance role within FTNA, financial planning analysis, that gave me a, a very good, broad understanding of all the businesses and all the geographies we offer. So after spending two years in London, really traveled around and enjoying ourselves in Europe, um, we had only that catalyst. We were expecting our first daughter. And uh, even though we truly enjoyed Europe and London, we still considered um, US to be home. And therefore, we decided to come back. And thanks to the globality of City again, um, I ended up in the FPNA role at the corporate level where I could have a view of the whole company and how we manage external investors, how do we manage board members, regulators, et cetera. So, Rating agencies. So that was a fascinating experience. And of course, we welcomed our first daughter uh, during that time. And then after two years, I had the itch again. And this time when I was looking around, uh, fortunately, a lot of my friends in London had moved to different places. And, and a friend of mine said, there is an open role in Johannesburg. What do you think? Um, I said, let me have a chat with my wife. And uh, <laughs> uh, when we talked, she said, where is Johannesburg? And let me Google it. And when we Googled, the top searches are like mugging videos in Johannesburg, security, <laughs> safety issues. It's like, this is not working out, right? So the, the, the role there was chief operating officer for the sub-Saharan Africa region, which is the set of 12 countries we operate in. And the CEO there kind of knew what reservations me and my family would have. So he said, Madam Chibes, come on, visit us with your wife, with your daughter, just stay here for a week. Let us show you around good, bad, and you decide whether you want to come or not. So we went in, and then the first night, the answer was, there's no way we are coming here. <laughs> but then we spent like three, four days there. We saw everything and we really enjoyed it. And fast forward today, of course, we moved there, we spent amazing two years. And I'll tell you in the conclusion of, of South Africa is we enjoyed it so much that it's in our number one list for like going back slash retire. Um, but from a career point of view, we have smaller offices in Johannesburg, right? So if I wanted to continue my career, I had to kind of come back to the mothership, which is what I did. And also, of course, we had second catalyst where we were expecting our second daughter at that point of time. So we had to go back to the mothership, which we did, and uh, come back to New York. Now, my stint in Johannesburg was my time away from finance function. So that's the only role I left finance function and did more of a CEO management role and came back to a transformation role in the treasury again, back to finance function with my old friends. Um, and then I continued my journey in treasury for another four years or so. Did transformation for a couple of years. Did stress testing for a couple of years. That's how I know what scenarios we run in bands to figure out uh, what to do when we get in trouble. And very topical, I spent two years in a function called resolution planning, which is basically... Um, 
regulator's way of telling us after 2008 that if you ever are close to bankruptcy, you better figure out how to resolve yourself without taking the rest of the world with So, of course, every bank has to do it. Uh, and I was responsible to keep those plants current and live if we ever have to use it, right? So, linking it back to what happened in the case of SVB, of course, SVB had submitted their plant just recently, a few months ago. And, of course, it's all closed doors, so nobody knows what happened to that plant and how much of that plant was actually triggered because of what happened with them, right? So, it's very... Uh, very close to my heart because I used to live and breathe those plants in my two years. And finally, my current role, which I felt like was like a collection. I was collecting every vertical of finance so far. Now I had an opportunity to bring them together in the context of a business or a product uh, or be sales and credit, right? So that's my binded thought to where I am. Very use- useful. And, and I love your story of, you know, traveling from here to London just to make sure that you know, your wife gets a chance to work. And, and I know very much about the H4. Most of the immigrants from India and their spouses, they go through this and it's quite a struggle. Of course, I'll tell my story some other time, but, you know, it's very close to home. I want to come back to the whole SVB thing, if time permits, uh, and get more color. But what I found interesting that you are also an angel investor, not one or two, but you have done quite a few of them. How did that journey start? So I, I think that journey started in, in Johannesburg um, because I really enjoyed working in a, in a smaller context. What I mean by that is kind of larger role in a smaller context, which is what they will typically call like big fish in a small pond. So I was then thinking to myself, so if I enjoy it, what does that mean? Does that mean that in future I could enjoy startup world? And there was too far uh, a hypothesis. So I started with the fact that uh, maybe I just like closing, stay close to the innovation and startup ecosystem. So let me have some skin in the game. And I started doing angel investment. And my, my philosophy was very simple. I was going to only invest in my friend, like colleagues, batchmates, because I, I considered that to be a tuition fee to learn about the system and not an investment, right? And also as a, of course, early angel, I was not going to write very big checks. And the only way this tuition fee will play out if I'm able to speak to the founder on a regular basis. So the only way to do it is by finding friends because no matter how small or big check you write, they'll always pick up your phone, they'll always talk to you and then you will have a relationship in the startup ecosystem. So that's how I got started and that's how I made most of my investments. Lately, I met, I took the step of doing second order. So now I also talk to my friends' friends, but still keeping the same philosophy of learning from them and with time hopefully contributing to as I true wish that's very profound, the way you put it, that angel investments are like a tuition fee for, for you to learn, for all of us, you know, to be honest, to learn about the business because we have no idea what yep. it is. And, and your, your colleague or your friend that's going through, he's the, he's the guy who's actually teaching you in a way, right? Yep. Um, that's amazing. And how those investments fared, if you want to talk about it. So it's an interesting question. I think my... my um, of course, it was a tuition fee, but I'm never going to say no for a payout. Uh, so, so 
the only the only thing i feel great about it is given the statistics around startups none of my investors may have failed so they're all still breathing alive and some of them are doing really well so i i feel lucky in that way and i must have uh it must be good keeping good company it so you know congrats on uh, on your continued success as an angel investor and of course many of them as you mentioned they are a long long ride until we know that they have reached their destination kind of changing topics mitesh you are an avid reader you know very very you know story set of list of books that you have gone through what has been the the top two or three that have influenced you so so i i go through two or three genres right and i'll i'll maybe recommend a book which is i would recommend to cfos or any numbers people which is called uh, making numbers count uh, it basically talks about how do human beings understand numbers and if you want to present numbers to anyone how should you do it and more importantly how do you not do it um the way some it would be appealing to other person right so i found it really important especially in the context of my own world uh then the second genre i really love is science and technology especially the deeper science in there my favorite book has been um a selfish gene by richard dawkins hmm. fascinating book about the evolution how you think how you function um and finally i love my uh, science fiction genre and my all time favorite has been uh a trilogy called the three body problem it's from a chinese author but like a really awesome story and mind bending um in its narrative so th- this is what i would say would be my like go to if somebody asks me for like just two or three books that's amazing recommendation so making numbers count the selfish gene and then the three body problem we'll add them to the show notes you grew up in india and then of course you know i grew up in india and then moved to the united states and there is this continuous conflict as we leave some parts of our culture behind as we grow up and then acquire new taste new new subject matters how has your transition been and probably deeper for you because you spent two years in london and then another two years in johannesburg how's that transition still going done do you see that in you so so i think that this transition has really helped me bring out what i want to do i really love exploring and i'm very very impatient about exploring so the way i've done that is um until i came to us which was when i was 41 i had been to only one country of course and then us being the second one fast forward to today i'm 42 and i've been to 41 countries so i very quickly realized that i love exploring other places cultures adventures in 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 it is a broader theme i really love broader perspectives when you are in one area one country one place one culture only you 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 miss other way of looking at the same things and when you are multiple countries and and cultures uh either the beliefs you had 
will solidify even further because you have stress tested them or you will realize that your beliefs is not really your beliefs. You believe in something else, right? So that's my philosophical spin on the travels that I have. Got it. And hinging to the same question that you transition from being an engineer to being a CFO now, is that possible for everybody who is going through career change or a lane change in terms of their direction? Or you just you know, went through a series of happy accidents that made you that transition happen? So I, I think if you had asked me this question, if I was a CFO like 20 years ago, I would have said it's really hard. And because this boils down to how much of a CFO function has changed and how much of the CFO function I think will change in the future. And, and the whole thing I'm going to talk about is grounded in the concept of world going towards more of a generalized skills from a specialized skills. So I think it's a very, very relevant point for CFO where with all due respect to my, my accounting friends and people who are CFO 20 years ago, has gone from being counting, what I call it, to really a strategic CFO where the emphasis is not on, of course, you have to count the beans. Otherwise, you don't have license to do business. If you don't do right reporting, if you don't count the numbers properly, it's, it's a foundation, right? It's a license to do business, but you're not going to get value there. You're not going to get the next steps out of them. The uh, bringing back to your answer is that today's CFO function is so much uh, of a forte of a generalist person who can go across businesses, products, skill sets, that um, it is much, much easier to convince yourself and others, no matter where you come from, that you can be a CFO function. You can do a CFO function it would be even more of a value add if you have done multiple completely unrelated things in education and experience to become a Interesting. And do you think then the role of a CFO or the CFO is at crossroads knowing how much AI has changed in the last three months of OpenAI and GPT's announcement and there is a huge undercurrent of automation and the finance department has been very much hand-to-hand combat driven. What's your perspective on that? I think I, I really wish I could say that um, finance function or the CFO function is ready for AI. But I feel like there are... So I think it's a different phase of evolution depending on the size of the company and industries that we operating. But I think... For the whole of CFO function across all the industries, we have a long way to go before we embark on AI. We, we don't have fundamental things completed yet, which is uh, the right sets of data at the right places, right, right way of analyzing it, using the tools. And it's all available, it's just the adoption issue. So I feel like there's a long way to go before CFO uh, or the finance function can truly um, use AI. Now, my hope is, like, it always happens. There is a, we, we leapfrog, like the way uh, emerging markets went from no telephones at all to the cell phones without ever going to landlines. My hope is that my fellow CFOs and finance functions go from very little automation or basic automation, like all the way to very intelligent systems. That will be my hope. But of course, that needs to play out 
uh, in, in reality. So I'm, I'm banking much more on foundational improvement first so that when we are ready for AI, we can really use it rather than just use the buzzword. Got it. Love that. Because so many basic things are still to be solved rather than, hey, just do an air cover and not worry about underpinnings of what the building is. Yeah, it's, a, it's like a classic cliche of garbage in, garbage out. So sometimes that GPT <laughs> will give you like really crazy answers because that's, it's, it's better in that topic, right? Got it. As we wrap up this episode, I want to understand how you drive your day-to-day operations, how you manage your energy level. How do you keep yourself sane in the insanity of everything that's going on because of the macro around us? So I I think I have realized through the years that I have a personality where I want to do everything. Like I'm just impatient. Like I don't want to leave anything out. That makes it a little bit challenging. My philosophy is I want to consume life with two right? Now, if you do want to do that in this insane world and with family and kids, I try to I, I try to use more tools at, at home than at work to organize my life, calendars, project management tools, um, to make sure that me and the whole family is like organized at any point of time because doing less is not an option for me. I always want to do more. I just need to figure out how to do it with the help of tools. Um, in the, I don't know, not, not only. Got it. That's amazing, Mitesh. Where can people find you? If you want to find me offline, it will be on a, a snowboarding in, in, in uh, winter, mountain biking trails in summer. And if you want to find me online, the only place I'm really active is on LinkedIn. Awesome. Thank you, Mitesh, for your time. That is Mitesh, our guest today on the Chief Future Officer podcast. Thanks, Andres. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Chief Future Officer podcast. The Chief Future Officer podcast is brought to you by Colum, a CFO's best buddy to buy and manage SaaS. To support this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast application. Links to previous episodes and the rest of the show notes are in the bio. And I'd love to have you check out other episodes. Lastly, if you want to be on this podcast or recommend a friend, let us know in the comments below. Thank you.